0: I'm Rob Dietz. I'm Jason Bradford. And I'm Asher Miller. Welcome to Crazy Town, where 43% of adult diaper sales at Amazon are for their own workers.
1: Hi, this is producer Melody Travers. In this season of Crazy Town, Jason, Asher, and Rob are exploring the watershed moments in history that have led humanity into the cascading crises we face in the 21st century. Today's episode is about the dehumanizing world of scientific management, where power tripping business tycoons turn workers into resources. The watershed moment took place in 1899. At the time, the estimated carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere was 296 parts per million, and the global human population was 1.63 billion.
2: Hey, everybody, our listeners out there, you know that we broadcast from Jason's farm. And Jason, uh, I got to commend you on running a farm that's Takes into account, uh, you know, people and, and the place, and you're trying to take care of the soil and the animals yeah. and well, organic food, yeah. yeah, yeah.
3: Thanks for recognizing that, Rob. I appreciate it. Yeah,
2: but uh, that's not really the issue here. Okay. What we need is to maximize the dollars and the output on this. Well, farm. Uh,
3: you're an investor in the farm, so you should you should be really mindful of that. I, I appreciate that. Well,
2: I am mindful, and I, I hired a management consultant a couple months back oh. to uh, come in with recommendations.
3: I that wasn't. In my operating budget. Uh, well, that's okay. We'll we'll
2: work that out in the details. But we've had drones flying over and monitoring what you've been doing here on the farm. And I thought I heard a buzz. <laughs> yeah, well, we've got some recommendations, okay? Yeah. Last week, you guys were working on the fence, trying to pound in some some poles, yeah. and you only got 50 of them done. Our consultants say you could have gotten 52 of them done if you weren't wearing pants. <laughs>
3: <laughs> it was cold.
2: Hey, right. you know, restrictive movements keep you from getting those fence posts.
3: In. I, I, I do have quilted jeans. Come we, on, but they're, they're got, stretchy.
2: We've got a booklet of ideas like this. We're gonna get some more dollars out of this farm. So, I,
3: I, I'm, okay, okay. Well, let let's talk to let's talk to to Kristen about this. Uh, the other owner and. I'm happy to listen
0: Okay, good, good It sounds to me, Rob, like you've been doing some reading up on Frederick Winslow Taylor Uh, I may have Okay, well, and we wanted to bring uh, up Taylor today Because Taylor is the person who's behind this watershed moment Which is famously or infamously known as the pig iron story Okay Okay. I don't know if you guys are familiar with this But let's just go back in time a little bit, okay Back to eighteen ninety nine mm-hmm. a long long time ago in a galaxy far far away, it was actually in a town called Bethlehem oh. Pennsylvania and this guy Frederick our buddy Freddie was outside with a bunch of his his uh his workers and he had a stopwatch actually he had a group of stopwatches with oh. him he was he was hired by the Bethlehem Steel company to manage a gang of seventy five men working uh on the rail yard basically they had to move. About 80,000 tons of of pig iron bars. Each of these bars weighed 92 pounds. Right? What the hell is pig iron? Is I there... think it's cheap iron, basically. Okay. They're trying to move all of this. So imagine 80,000 tons of this stuff. Yeah. Right, They're trying to move it from the main yard to the railroad cars, right? And so mm-hmm. they had a gang of like 75 workers so working on this.
2: Cher, you, you and I are basically glorified desk workers. You think the two of us together could move a 92-pound bar?
3: <laughs> I'm, I'm doing some calculations right now. You're totally insulting me.
0: Right? Uh, at, at my age, I could, yeah, I could. I could Jason maybe, would just be twirling him like a for, baton. A, yeah. for a, a foot at a time. Each um,
3: man needs to move 11.59 bars, by the way. Anyway, keep going.
2: Wow. You're like a disciple of Frederick Taylor already.
3: <laughs> uh, weighing weighing one thousand sixty six sixty seven pounds, 1,067 pounds total. 1.21 gigawatts. <laughs> but go on. I love this. I love this. This guy sounds great.
0: Clearly. Well, so the bars were needed for the Spanish-American War. I don't know exactly why, but there was a big rush on to get, you know, to get uh, this iron. Uh, yeah. yeah,
2: making ships, making guns. Yeah, yeah. so they're...
0: Um, they're trying to get it, you know, onto the, onto the rail cars as quickly as possible. So on March 11th, 1899, Taylor, and he had a, a bunch of, of guys, young guys um, working for him who were there to observe these, you know, these workers in the in the rail yard, right? And they took their stopwatches and they were trying to figure out how much, you know, how many tons, how much of this pig iron these guys were moving on on average per day. And they calculated... That it was about 12 and a half tons per person per day on average. Hmm. So they applied this you know, sort of science of observing these guys, timing them, and all this stuff, and figured out that if they actually applied the, the best ways of moving the stuff that Taylor came up with, that they could actually, on average, load 47 and a half tons. Hmm. Of, of pig iron instead. That's right, like that's, almost four times as much. It's a lot more, and, and more than the song owed
2: sixteen tons.
0: And Taylor was much smarter than you, Rob, or the <laughs> consultant that you hired. Low bar. It wasn't about you know taking your pants off so you could get a better grip or something <laughs> on the pig iron bar. You know, I don't I don't know exactly what the techniques <laughs> were. That came well,
3: with. Uh, uh, so eighty thousand pat eighty thousand. Oh, Oh, eighty thousand tons,
0: buddy! Put, put, yeah,
3: I put pounds.
2: Put in yeah, there. your, put your is, calculator away.
0: Oh my away. god! That's
3: why you're a farmer. I was so far off, and, and
0: not an MBA consultant.
3: Oh my god! I gotta go. I gotta go back. You gotta
0: to school. go back to back to school, buddy. Jeez,
3: um, that's a lot of pig I'm
0: like, this is not that hard. So, <laughs> the reason this is the watershed moment is yeah. because this this seminal moment in Bethlehem, right? Uh, uh, t- t-
2: time out. You can't. Use the word seminal in Bethlehem. Bethlehem,
0: <laughs> Bethlehem Pennsylvania. Oh, okay. okay. The okay. seminal moment in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania would eventually lead to the development of the theory of scientific management and ultimately the formation of a whole new class of worker, the manager, who usually came out of one of thousands of MBA programs from around the world.
3: That's 1.7 million of those 92-pound bars. That's a the, lot. I was so far off.
0: You were very far off. I'm sorry. I'm
3: caught in this right now. But yeah. let's move on. The story yeah. The story is good.
0: Uh, yeah. What well, a great job they had moving this stuff. Don't
2: you oh think? Oh, my well, God. Can, can we talk for a minute about which is the worst job? Like being the guy sitting there with a stopwatch trying to figure out? No,
3: we're talking 1.7 million 92-pound bars of iron. I think I'd rather be the stupid manager. <laughs> Well, I don't oh, know. I mean,
2: I, I, I know I'm a scrawny dude and would never be able to move all that stuff, but... It seems like at least a good day's work
0: as opposed to going ah,
2: blah I've got my stopwatch here and uh that guy. Uh
0: yeah, let's I, I Jason, <laughs> let's, let's set this up for Rob. So you could do this for a day, okay? And right. then you could come back to us and tell us which job you've done. These are than. like yeah. these
2: guys were like the uh, CrossFit before that was a thing, right? The, you, you this know, is the, what
0: you would want your CrossFit to Well jam this is where our economy's gone, is like you gotta invent a CrossFit because people don't actually do you know, a lot of people don't do this kind of hard labor anymore. It's though.
3: a lot easier to put in fence posts, Rob. I should do 52. <laughs> you're right. Yeah. yeah.
0: yeah. Uh,
2: well, why don't we uh, talk a little bit about this character, Frederick Taylor. As you alluded to, I I did a uh, little bit of reading up on him, and I wanted to share that with you guys. So he was born into a privileged family. They had high expectations on him and his brother, and they sent him to the best high school, Phillips Exeter, which is... That sounds pretty good. It's probably like an like Ivy private, League college, basically. Yeah. yeah. So that, that was uh, kind of his, his start in life. Yeah, and
3: he, you know, It turns out Taylor and I re- probably related because his family came over on the Mayflower just like my family.
0: Oh wow,
2: hoity-toity! You seem yeah. to remind us of that almost every episode. Well, you guys bring it up more. I bring aren't. it up more because yeah,
0: yeah. I, yeah, I like to give we're just jealous about
2: it. I, yeah, we didn't go to fancy Exeter high schools or, or either, sail um, on ships. Actually, Do you think Mayflower was fancy? Yeah. <laughs> I don't yeah. think it was fancy. Well, at least I made it across the ocean. Yeah, yeah. it was That's a good true. ship. So, uh, actually, it's it's good you brought it up because Taylor was actually, he he would have belonged well on the ship. He was a true Puritan. Mm. No alcohol, no tea or coffee, no fun, was not allowed to have fun at all. No, (laughs) Uh, but he he was definitely obsessed with work.
3: Our family's moved on from that, by the way. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Well, his obsession was so great that he studied so hard. I guess there was a big competition at Exeter, who could be the best student? and So they would read and read and read and read. I have no idea what that's like. I try to avoid reading. But he ended up basically blowing out his eyes, Ah. like his eyesight failed. And so rather than go on to college and become a lawyer like his parents wanted him to, he ended up, becoming an apprentice at the Midvale Steel Company.
3: Hmm. I bet lighting wasn't as good back then. Yeah. Like reading by candlelight, it must have been awful. Right,
2: right. Alliance. Well, you know, but he was such a hard worker, he moved his way up, became the gang boss, and then the, the chief engineer. And he started coming up with these theories, these ideas about how to manage the, the steel company better. And voila, we get to a share's
0: watershed moment in 1899. Yeah, and I think what really tipped this story into being something that actually really transformed uh, business, and, and perhaps you could even make a claim to society at a larger scale was Louis Brandeis. ever ever heard of him? You Brandeis remember? University, yeah, yeah. He was uh, a Supreme Court judge, right? Oh, yeah.
3: okay. You know more than
0: I do. Even. I think first Jewish Supreme Court Justice huh. ever. He was a you know he was a lawyer and became a, a highly regarded lawyer. I think a labor lawyer to begin with. And Brandeis actually became enamored. He heard about what our buddy Freddie was doing, and he, he talked it up. There was a situation where the railroad companies were, were petitioning the government. I guess they had to get approval to, to do a freight rate increase, mm-hmm. and they're trying to jack it up. And, and Brandeis argued that instead of doing a price hike, they could save millions of dollars like a million dollars a day if they just applied Taylor scientific management techniques. Uh, Yeah, 47
3: and a half tons of pig (laughs) iron loaded, baby. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> if they did that, they could be a lot more productive and therefore they wouldn't have to increase If you can rates. exploit the hell
2: out of some labor, there's no reason to raise but, prices.
0: But it's funny. He actually was a proponent and a yeah. defender of labor. He thought that applying scientific management would actually help these workers.
3: Oh, interesting.
0: Yeah. And that really put Taylor sort of on the map. It got a lot of, of press coverage and attention. I think at some point he actually was brought in to testify in front of Congress and stuff. And, uh, in 1911 he published The Principles of Scientific Management based upon the sort of the techniques and the, the approach that he, he developed at Bethlehem Steel. And that book ended up being voted the most influential management book of the 20th century by the Academy of Management in 2001. That's an academy I huh. I, I yeah. long to belong to yeah. <laughs> someday, but no, I'm I mean, you're not, the, you're the not top, good enough manager.
3: You're the top manager at Post Carbon Institute. I'm I mean. not good enough to, to belong But
0: anyways... <laughs> um, and, you know, all that was based on his experiences of Bethlehem Steel. And, and that book ended up becoming the best-selling business book in the first half of the 20th century.
3: I mean, I can imagine why someone who's, who's you know, if you think about scientific management, what it, was, what it was portrayed as, how someone who's, like, really in favor of labor rights would be like, yeah, this is going to be helpful, right? It's like, it's basically using research and data to optimize the work a labor force can do in a given time. And if you can, if you imagine that, Okay, you're going to get management on the side of labor to help they make them more efficient, get more out of them, but also maybe that, that requires better training, better equipment, and maybe if they are more productive, they can, they can call for higher wages. So you can, you can think about how efficiency and productivity could maybe be a good thing if you're a worker,
2: well, that that's all well and good. I I like that definition of optimizing whatever, but I I think Taylor's genius was he just added the word scientific in front of it. <laughs> so, like I was thinking about that, I. I Want to do scientific coffee brewing so that I can get more caffeine per, People per do cup that. of coffee. Yeah, they
0: do. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. Oh, and I got the, uh, the
0: exact temperature you got to get the beans
3: at. And all that. I'm not awake enough well, to do may- that.
2: Maybe I picked too nerdy of a topic. I want to do scientific soccer spectating where I can watch 110 <laughs> minutes of soccer in one 90 minute game. How about that?
0: Huh? <laughs> yeah. Well, there is the, the uh, halftime, so I think you got her right now yeah. in 10 minutes there already.
2: Yeah. I, I want to try one other definition of scientific management. How about how to run a team by being
0: the biggest asshole? Does that... Uh... <laughs> I think a lot of people have gone to that, that program.
3: Yeah. It was ostensibly about using these what sound like reasonable techniques to increase productivity... But what it ended up doing, it seems like, is is promoting the creation of this whole new class of worker. You know, the educated scientific manager, which really is setting themselves apart from then the wage laborers, right?
2: Yeah. They're also called stopwatchers. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I mean, let's put ourselves in the position of say we're, we're 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 deepened in the industrial revolution. Factories are being put together at larger, larger scale, being financed with these captive industry around. But you imagine at a certain scale, you're an owner, just like Rob's an owner. It doesn't know what the <laughs> hell's going on, just right. like Rob doesn't. Right. Um,
0: you need to hire drones. To-
3: and, yeah, and, and so it becomes impossible for the owner class to really know what's going on. So they they need this this management, this 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 new set of people that are in between them and the and the wage laborers to sort of stay on top of, of things and report. And of course, if you can couch it as, oh, we're going to make your workers super efficient, then that is really appealing, of course.
0: And and like we were talking about with Brandeis, you know, who thought that maybe applying scientific management would actually improve the lot of laborers, right? Maybe right. they could argue for for better pay or something like that. The truth is that this idea of having kind of a, a, a new managerial class was... Basically, saying these workers can't figure this, this no. stuff out themselves, right, right? Right. The the bosses don't really know what's going on. The owners don't know what's going on, and you can't trust the workers. No. I mean, his his biographer claimed that he actually re- respected the labor. This is
3: Taylor's biography, yeah, exactly. Okay.
0: But but if you actually read the stuff that this guy said, I mean, it's pretty it's pretty heinous. You know, one thing one of the things he wrote was that the the ideal worker is so stupid, quote unquote, so stupid and phlegmatic. That he more nearly resembles in his mental makeup the ox than any other type. he is unable to understand the real science of doing this class of work. He's so stupid that the word percentage has no meaning to him. Oh, stupid.
2: Geez. That, that is rough. And can we just not be insulting oxen as well? Yeah, I, mean, I know. We had an episode about, uh, about dominating animals and how we need to ha- be in a different relationship. Here, he's not only saying... People are as bad. They're so bad
0: that they're like oxen. We actually had another episode about oxen. Remember Bill and Luce? Oh, yeah. Not so excellent adventure. Right, right.
2: <laughs> wow. We, uh, we do return to the animal themes.
0: Well, oxen specifically. Mm-hmm.
2: Well, you know, one of the weird things, like when when Frederick Winslow Taylor says that stuff, it almost sounds like he's responding to the trauma that befell him like in in coming up with scientific management he's putting this pressure on workers right like he's pummeling them away and when he went through this suffering at oh, Exeter. at Exeter, yeah. You know, like but
3: it, in terms of reading too much, yeah.
2: Yeah, it's like he saw the direct effects of overdoing the a abuse work task. The abuse become
3: the abusers.
2: Yeah, I, that's yeah. it really kind of made me think of that. Huh. Maybe, you know, whatever. I don't want to armchair psycholo- psychologize this guy that, that I've never met. But, um, yeah, it seems seems pretty
0: odd. Well, if it's not obvious already to listeners, we're not huge fans of the scientific management <laughs> thing. Uh, it, you know, seeing the clear toll that it might take. on. I'm
3: willing to listen to the consultant Rob put out for me, though. I, I just oh, let nice. you know, I'm, well, I'm willing to listen. Let me You're take let me make off when you go. yeah, I'll take my pants off. Let me make you
2: guys aware of something. Okay, okay, right? Frederick Winslow Taylor, FWT. Make that an anagram. You got WTF?
0: Oh, I thought you were going to say <laughs> for the win.
2: No, 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 no. It's it's WTF, not uh, yeah.
0: FTW. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, well, let, let's talk about let's get, talk about WTF for a second, right? Because <laughs> here's the thing: not only, and, and we'll talk a little bit about this, not only are there some negative consequences of applying "quote unquote" scientific management to labor. Turns out that it's all kind of bullshit in the first place. So let's, <laughs> let's talk about this story, right? This, okay. this story of what happened in, in Bethlehem, right? And I'm actually going to quote a great in piece. the manger. In the manger. I want to quote, uh, quote a great piece by uh, Jill Lallor in, in The New Yorker, who talks about what actually, you know, how, how did he come up with these 47 and a half tons? Remember, that was the number that they came up with, which is that an average worker could ideally move in, in a day. Right, right? <laughs> That's crazy. So here's how he did it. Quote, unquote, he chose 12 large, powerful Hungarians. Nice. So he picked out the strongest guys in the group. Yeah. Right? Portion bread, baby. Let's go. And he observed them for an hour. He calculated that at the rate that they were working, they were loading 24 tons of pig iron per man per day. Right? And then he handpicked this group and dared them to load 16 and a half tons as fast as they could. I think he even offered them some extra pay. So they managed to do that in 14 minutes right okay. um, so that yielded a rate of 71 tons per man per a 10-hour day he, he then rounded that up to 75 right but then he saw these guys even these strong you know strapping hungarian dudes or whatever that that were working at this rail yard were spent man yeah. you know they were working as hard as they could they'd ruptured
2: 25 discs <laughs> exactly <laughs> the, um, the ground was covered in hungarian
3: vomit <laughs>
0: <laughs> that looks like it's red. Yeah, it's, it's, it's beet juice. Goulash. Is
3: that yeah, yeah, maybe a paprika. We're so insulting to the <laughs> poor Hungarian people. I'm oh, sorry.
0: Um, not not very nice of us. Not as insulting as Taylor was. It, I think. Okay, right. but I love in, Hungarian food. In any case, so you know when he saw that, okay, not even these dudes can work their asses this hard for like ten hours a day, right? So he decided to, he would reduce that number by about forty percent. He's like, you know, you gotta you gotta work in quote-unquote, a, a work-to-rest ratio, uh-huh. which was the law of heavy labor. Oh, right? so he's like,
3: He's created a law. It's a law. Yeah. <laughs> it's scientific. It's a scientific law. So wait, law.
2: let me get this straight. You need a law that says if you uh-huh. work really hard, it's good to rest?
0: Yeah, exactly. Wow. I love
3: managerisms. These yeah. are great quotes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so that's how he came up with this, this, you know, almost a fourfold increase in what these workers were doing. And he's basically riding them hard. And, and uh, you know, anyone who quit, uh, anyone who was complaining about it basically was, was fired. It turns out that there was only one dude out like, <laughs> uh, this entire group that could do yeah. anything close to this amount, right? Yeah. So clearly it wasn't sustainable. But
3: Was he Hungarian?
0: I don't know. Okay. No, his name was Henry Knoll, oh, this guy. Oh, okay. Guy, big guy. Um,
2: he, he was Austro-Hungarian. He was a descendant of Arnold Schwarzenegger, <laughs> okay. actually. Ancestor. Um,
0: Ancestor. Yes. Oh, sorry.
3: Yeah.
0: It gets worse, I mean, unless it's a time travel movie with Arnold. (laughs) Right, right. So not only is this whole thing skewed by the way he even did this quote-unquote experiment, right? But it turns out there, and this is an amazing thing, there's these two business professors in the 70s who did a close analysis of the pig iron experiments and actually went back into Taylor's, like, You know, uh, things that he was saying and what he wrote down in his his notes, in his diary or whatever it was. You know, he was talking up this story for years before he wrote his book, Uh right? And it turns out he kept changing the story. So even this (laughs) fucked up number, which was like totally unsustainable number, he just pulled out of thin air when he basically wrote this book. It wasn't a consistent thing.
3: Wait, I I got to do my calculations again, you're saying? Hey, here, I got my calculator here.
2: So
0: this scientific... You know this whole thing, scientific management. There's like no science involved in in its yeah. origin story. Forty-seven
2: at all. tons, seventy-eight tons, one point two trillion tons <laughs> exactly. per man.
0: And, and 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 the last kicker is, you know, two years after he got hired, you know, Bethlehem Steel basically ended up cutting him off. You know, getting rid of him. He wasn't actually saving them much money, but the guy walked away with a cool hundred grand for this work. Which, you know, today's dollar is about like $3 million for for doing this, this consulting work. Jim, well,
3: I'm going on LinkedIn right now. I'm turning myself into a consultant.
0: Yeah.
2: Well, let's, let's talk about this for a minute. I was joking with you about hiring a consultant. But oh. uh, when I was in college, uh, senior year, all of these management consultants – they would come to the school to recruit people from the Wharton Business School, right? Okay. So, I mean, we had like the Boston Consulting Group, McKinsey, uh, Carney, KPMG, all these. You know, they're like highfalutin boutique. You know, uh, consultancies. Mean, some of them are huge. Yeah, some of them are really big. Yeah. McKinsey is
3: huge, and they're, I, I've not really liked anything they've written that I've but, read.
2: But it was pretty wild. The setup was. In our career center, there were these slots, almost like in a, a post office or something, where you could just drop your resume into the company's recruiting slot. And so I, I did that. I was like, oh. I'll. Did
0: they time he, how quickly
2: you yeah, did it? Yeah, probably did, right? <laughs> uh, there, there, that there, guy, that it, guy was slow. Yeah, they had a camera watching. Oh, he only delivered five resumes in the, in the three minutes. But no, I, I did drop with almost all of those kinds of management consultants. And I got quite a few interviews but I I didn't I didn't get uh, hired by any of them. I think it's because I, I tried to turn the interview around. I was like timing the guy on his questions. <laughs> uh, dude, you only got five questions out. Hey, in the, they, they you know. can
3: dish it out, but they can't take <laughs> yeah, it.
2: Clearly not. Yeah, so I, I'm sure that's why they didn't want the likes of me. <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I do think that's actually one of the legacies of of Taylor is this whole industry of Overconfident uh, think tanky consultants that come in and tell you how to run your show, even though they're not they're not there. They just apply some goofball blunt instrument or the what do you call it the law of of whatever well, they, well, it was. They, they create
3: also an aura of sort of guru like status around them, and they may not know a whole lot about what you actually do. Yeah, but some outside consulting comes in and suddenly a, a company says, okay, well they're telling us and we pay for it. You know, it's right. like, uh, it, it's just, Well we've
0: st- talked about like, uh, I don't know if it's a, a sunk cost bias, but you invest in something right. and you're like, it's gotta be good. Yeah. Right? yeah.
3: And then and you yeah. don't want to tell anyone what, how ridiculous the whole thing was because it makes you look bad.
0: Right. So. Right. <laughs> well, it's amazing though.
2: Like you said, some of it's this, this guru aura, but there's a lot of bullshit in it. And, and even though the debunking that you just gave us a share on, on Taylor's whole origin story, scientific management has become a big thing that really influences our culture. Yep. There's actually an author, this guy, Robert Kenigel or Canigel, I'm not sure how you pronounce his name, but he wrote a book called The One Best Way, Frederick Winslow Taylor and the Enigma of Efficiency. And he actually says that Taylorism or this idea of scientific management has been completely absorbed into the living tissue of American life.
3: Yeah, I mean... It does it, it, certainly in business so I think of Ford assembly line
2: yeah Ford is a good example and Toyota had this kind of lean methodology uh, definitely has wound its way into into business but I think also broader than that too. oh I
3: mean and and Taylor saw that it was broader like he had, a, he, had a, he had a vision that it would yeah infiltrate and so in, in his in his book he he calls this you know a mental revolution and he could apply it with equal force to all social activities, to the management of our homes, the management of our farms. Ding, 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 ding. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> the, the management of the business of our tradesmen, large and small, of our churches. Wow. Our mega churches, I guess.
0: Yeah.
3: <laughs> our philanthropic don't, institutions. Don't make me do another Joel Osteen imitation. <laughs> <laughs> our universities and our government departments. But my favorite, of course, is how this was applied then in the in family, Right. So there was uh, uh, Frank and Lillian Gilbreth, and they were time and motion efficiency experts. <laughs> what? A,
0: what <laughs> is that? Like okay. a, that was their job. Now they're, here's a- they're actually there. There's some- um. There's some great stuff that's been done criticizing some of this. There was a like a, a vogue thing for a while yeah. where people were really trying to make movements as efficient as possible. And I actually saw this like cartoon that was done where one guy was like critiquing another guy who's kissing his girlfriend. Like he's yeah. like there are 15 wasted motions in that right there. But, <laughs> you know?
3: Well, they didn't. There's a certain motion that they did not waste because they had 12 children. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Talk about a seminal moment. Uh, And they decided. To, you know, this is, that's a lot. That's a lot to deal with. So they decided to raise their children according to the Taylor method. And, oh my God. And this was made famous. So each by,
2: child had to
0: move 47 tons yeah, of pig, pig iron, iron a day. <laughs> yes. You have to eat your cereal in 12 <laughs> seconds.
3: Yes. Two of their kids actually wrote a, a book about this and it, it turned into, you know, uh, a film. It's called Cheaper by the Dozen. Oh, yeah.
0: There's been a, like a bunch of those made, right? Yeah, like three movies. Steve Martin, I think, yes. was,
2: was in yeah, it. Yeah, so it was originally a movie in 1950, but then, yeah, Steve Martin and, and remade it. Now, you know, Disney is remaking it this
0: very year. Oh, awesome.
3: Wow. Oh, that's what we need. so
0: They're practicing total efficiency by just remaking shit all the time, <laughs> yeah. right? yeah. No new new original scripts or plots. Well, you
2: got to keep Taylor alive. You got to keep scientific management in yeah. the pop culture and in 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 our mindset. Well, the- I,
3: I think it's still around. Like, I mean, think about what we do nowadays with with our our phone apps and. Oh yeah. Remember, remember the guy um, Tim Ferriss. You ever hear of him? And then yeah, he was big about popular. ten years ago. The four-hour work week, right? Promising—that's <laughs> th- what I do. Yep.
0: Yeah. Ah. His big thing was—it's called like, having a trust fund. <laughs> you know,
3: his big thing was like outsourcing, outsourcing what you don't like to do or want to do, and essentially it was like the, it was like paying somebody in Bangladesh.
0: What privilege? <laughs> I know, oh my god! Are, to, are you fucking kidding me? To do
3: me? like things for
0: you? Like, you know, I don't want to do that. I don't want to wipe my ass. <laughs> <laughs> let's, right, right, right. Let's outsource that. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. In- yeah. Incredible. And then, of course, then we need to get other apps like meditation apps like help us you yeah, know, calm down calm down a little bit.
3: Uh,
2: well, so in terms of the legacy of Taylor, we talked about how it got taken up by businesses. You're talking about how it's been taken up in pop culture and in families. and But I want to come back to business a, a little bit and more specifically to business school. Mm. So Harvard actually started the first MBA program, but the guy... That was in charge of that was having a lot of trouble. So uh, I guess this guy Edwin Gay he wanted to start this program, but he couldn't figure out what it would actually be about because hmm. you know he's talking to business people and they'd say, "Oh, you can't really teach business. You got to feel it," you know. And, oh, interesting. And so then he he came across Taylor's work and he's like, "Oh, this is the perfect hook for my business school because this, yes, this we can scientific. teach." Yeah. Well, and,
3: what it makes me think though is like. I'm running businesses, small businesses, and there's a lot of stuff I didn't know that would have been nice to have some schooling in. Sure. You know, legal side of things, insurance, accounting, accounting. finance. Finance, right. So I think there is a role to teach people some of the basics like that, of course.
0: Yeah. uh, absolutely yeah. and there were business schools maybe not master's programs yet but you know they're teaching business yeah. before well and, and even management i i could see
2: throwing some courses or resources on how do you organize stuff or yeah. at least making it part how
3: do you make so.
0: sure that the employees aren't unionizing <laughs>
3: <laughs> right, right right there's a lot of sort of like social dynamics you have to be aware but of but it,
2: it's gotten pretty pretty wild how much this has grown i mean Nowadays, you got something like two hundred thousand MBA masters of business administration graduates every year, and it's the most popular graduate program in the United wow. States. And same with undergrad business yeah. is now the most popular major in all the colleges. And it didn't used
3: to be. Has this grown?
2: Yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it wasn't even a thing before uh, basically the the turn of the to the twentieth century.
0: Wow, but. Yeah, I also think there's, and I don't know what the stats are on this, but I think a really high percentage of of CEOs, people at the very top levels in, in corporations are all MBAs. I mean, it's huh. kind of like an expectation on some level in order to rise up in in management to get into sort of C-suite, you know, executive level stuff.
2: It, it, huh. it kind of, I, I don't mean to be disrespectful to people studying this, but it, it doesn't strike me as like the, the strongest course of study, right? Like I you see people getting a PhD in accounting and it's like, what, what exactly does that entail? <laughs> I mean, like I see a, like years in biology, Jason, you're trying to understand how an ecosystem works better or trying to understand how uh, some part of the living world actually operates. And there's like, how do we add up these numbers better? <laughs> you know, like a, It just it, it strikes me as odd that that's such a popular yeah. course of study.
0: I think we should talk about you know why we even pick this as a watershed moment. Mm-hmm. you know what why do we see this as being so so important and and I think there are a few reasons. I mean, one of them is, I don't think you can understate how how much it's changed labor and in our economy to have kind of this new managerial class mm-hmm. you know that that has emerged, whether they're being taught. Specifically, tailor stuff or not? I mean, I think that that's probably gone out of out of vogue on some level, and there are other things that people are being taught. But this idea that that there's this you know new class of worker that that sits on top of, of labor, right, mm-hmm. and that that manages them, that serves as a buffer between sort of the capital class, you know, the, right. the owners, owners yeah. of business. And are being essentially richly rewarded for getting, for extracting the maximum out of these workers, you know, seeing labor. I mean, you go back to looking at economic. You know the 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 equations for you know for for economic models, right? Labor and and land or whatever. Yeah, land, labor, capital, yeah, productivity and, equations. And yeah. it, it's like let's maximize you know this labor component as much as possible. And 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 we've clearly seen there's been and, and a lot of this is is pointed to in terms of technology, but we've seen this this growing disparity between the growth of productivity and wages yeah. for labor, right? Like right. they're actually even if. Brandeis early on thought this is a way of increasing the the well-being of laborers. You know, it's actually been used as a way in the right. sense of, you know, all these gains going really effectively to the top.
2: Guy, you know what it
0: reminds me of? Did you guys ever see
2: that I think it was out on YouTube where Rutger Bregman, uh, this this kind of Dutch author was interviewed by Tucker Carlson? Oh yeah, and I remember that. It was okay. great. So what he did is he totally confronted Carlson. He's like you are a millionaire who is serving as the mouthpiece for billionaires. You know, you basically <laughs> yeah. spout Rupert Murdoch's bullshit yeah, so that yeah. he can make more money, and then Tucker Carlson, of course, flips out and it cuts calls, him off. Yeah, it calls yeah. him a, a butthead or whatever. <laughs> and It was a, it's a great clip, but I, I really appreciate that because, yeah, you're you're right. Like you have this whole class of people now that's like they're all getting enriched to a, a really insane level, but not as insane as the people employing right, them all at the expense of the, the working class. You
0: know, it's it's not just the 1% or the 0.1%. It's this population of people who, and I'm not going to, I don't want to disparage them all. I mean, I, obviously there the are people who are, Many of them, I'm sure, well intentioned, and they work hard and all this stuff. But this has absolutely fueled inequality by benefiting people. People go to these MBA programs, have to, in a sense, justify themselves. I'm sure and they pay a lot, a lot of money for them you know, too. Oh I'm sure gosh. there's a lot of value that people get out of it. You know, but, but the sort of veneer of science, you know, right. to this, and and then the graduates feel like they have to, you know, it it, it all feeds itself in a sense, in, in terms of creating the system where there's this bifurcation. Right. And and you have to have especially with these enormous corporations. Enormous corporations. You know, you have to like manage so many workers and And so many processes. I mean
3: this this actually ties in really well with with an episode we did last year on the overproduction of elites and where we talked about sort of primary, secondary, and tertiary jobs in the economy and that this was only really possible to have so many tertiary jobs, so many of these jobs that are managerial, mm-hmm. because of the complexity of society, most required it. But then the energy basis allowed it to get this out of whack, and so I, I, I really think that's a a really good tie into this. So you're seeing you're seeing the rise of this. As the Industrial Revolution is growing and consolidating and societies are getting more and more complex with with trade and division of labor, etc.
0: And using more and more energy and using to, more and more to energy. do all of that. Yeah. And, and, and as we talked about, these sort of tertiary jobs are the best paying.
3: Yeah, right? and they're the best paying.
0: You know, like the primary jobs, right, right. the ones that we need, fundamentally need, Yeah. You know, we call them essential workers now, right? But they get paid the least. It's, uh, it is kind of bonkers. You know, the other the other thing to bring up in terms of, you know, how does this relate to Crazy Town is that, I mean, there, there has been an increase in, in efficiency and productivity, right? I mean, even if a lot of Taylorism stuff is bullshit, you know, this this focus on efficiency gain, on increasing productivity... It may have not translated to great – especially with the destruction of unions, which I think you can also attribute to the rise of the managerial class, Mm -hmm. right, is that you have these productivity gains – they don't necessarily lead to gains in wages for for labor, but they have led to cheaper products right. and more consumption, right? Right. which is, again, just fueling this sort of crazy town thing of like scraping every resource we can out of the earth, exploiting labor and creating all this pollution that's going to do us in.
3: Yeah, efficiency ends up being maybe our enemy in the long run.
0: Yeah, and, and if you think about it, I mean, it, we've taken it now to this place where we now globalize supply chains because, you know, it's cheaper to get labor somewhere else. Right. You know what I mean? Because energy has been so cheap. And that has directly led us to deal with the kinds of shocks that we're seeing now with supply chains and pressures. When, when these supply chains kind of break down, they become brittle because it's such a focus on efficiency. And I
3: mean, again, remember, we also had an episode where we talked about how you got to be careful when you talk about what you mean by efficiency. Yeah. yeah. And here... What we're talking about is optimizing for profit, okay, financial gain, which when you have a high cost labor system means you've got to reduce the cost of labor, reduce the amount of labor per unit of production, mm-hmm. use technology with energy to leverage less labor to get more. And so or outsource it to or some outsource other place. somewhere where labor is cheaper. So this is this is yes, labor efficiency, which is really about the financial rewards of doing right. so and then the, the lock-in of, of technology and energy dependency. Well,
2: and when you start thinking that way, that's when it's easy to see people as cogs in a machine, right? You're, yeah. You're, you're thinking of them as some kind of resource rather than people. And I think this, you know, we can kind of look at a culmination of this, at least today. Maybe this will get worse, but with the Amazon warehouse scene, have you guys heard of Adapt? Adapt, no. yeah, that's the Associate Development and Performance Tracker, <laughs> uh-huh. which is used uh-huh. at Amazon to review employee performance.
0: Uh-huh. Wait, is this that app that they have to? Is it like an app that they have to install on their phones or something?
2: Yeah, they, everyone is tracked. If they log off, that gets tracked. Basically, they're you know Big Brother is watching you there, and it, it it's so like. You don't waste time with stuff like going to the bathroom or or eating your lunch.
0: Yeah, it's all, I guess, they've got this algorithm, right, that looks at what is like the optimal productivity of a worker. And if you're not hitting those.
3: It's like Taylorism. It is. Yeah.
0: The crazy thing is,
2: uh, Usain Bolt was the employee that they used in the warehouse, and he was like, "He was the employee of the month." He was going a hundred meters in nine seconds, and he was wearing
0: a what's called a stadium pal, which is this—it's uh, this bag that you wear around your ankle, <laughs> and uh, and you put—you have like basically like a catheter. Yeah. You well, hell, you
2: you joke, but uh, employees have taken to peeing in bottles so that. Because they're worried about getting fired if yeah. they don't meet their their. We're laughing to that.
0: That shit is not funny. That's in. That's insane. Yeah. Right?
2: Plus the bottles, uh, they have to buy them from Amazon. <laughs>
0: <laughs> if they were smart, they just put them back on the shelf and right. get them shipped out.
2: Oh, they get sell them for more. Your your bottle comes pre filled. That's good
3: fertilizer. <laughs> I'll take some of those.
2: That's great. All right. Yeah. You, you better watch. You're going to end up with a shipment of urine bottles. <laughs>
0: If Bezos is listening, that's for sure.
2: Oh, we're being tracked. <laughs> hey, guys, I got another really nice five-star review that I want to share with you. This one comes from PLMJ62, or possibly plumg 62 Oh, yeah. Okay. No, that- uh, plumg says... I enjoy the fact that through a healthy injection of scatological humor and unrelated pop culture <laughs> healthy injection references. Of
0: scatological? Yes. Okay.
2: And unrelated pop culture references, Rob, Asher, and Jason make the myriad existential crises we face entertaining. Oh, it's, that's true. up the good work.
3: Yay. Thank you.
2: So, yeah. You had me at scatological. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. And if you want to help us out like PLMJ62, please go to your favorite podcast app and leave us a five-star rating. Hit that share button if you like an episode and get your uh, family and friends listening to Crazy Town.
0: Every decision I've ever made in my entire life has been wrong. (laughs) My life is the complete opposite of everything I want it to be. If every instinct you have is wrong, then the opposite would have to be right.
3: <laughs> when I was watching this Netflix series on the Michael Jordan, and they called The Last Dance, it was really more than just about Michael Jordan. It was about the team around him and also the coach, Phil Jackson. I found that character pretty amazing. And one of the things that, that I got out of it was how how Phil adapted his treatment to the individual, and he really, he really had this really strong personal relationship. Hmm. And the character it stands out for is Dennis Rodman. Remember that guy? Yeah,
0: yeah he yes. was. He we'll was the, the, He would belong here in Crazy Town. <laughs> so Dennis, uh, would, he belongs in North Korea with his buddy over there.
3: He was, he was out there, and they had plenty of footage and examples of Dennis being. Pretty wild, going to Vegas in the middle of season. He
0: left in the middle of like the playoffs. Yes. and he disappeared.
3: He went to some wrestling performance. But, but he of was Hulk Hogan. A,
2: but he was incredible. Like what a rebounder. He was like the high energy. guy. Well, that
3: was the thing. It was like on the court, he gave everything. And what Phil Jackson and the team accepted was that we've got to give him space to be himself and take the breaks he needs because we know he's going to be. He's going to. He's going to tell us what he needs outside of basketball to be great at basketball. So anyway, I bring this up, and they do the opposite, and to say that when you have a small enough team like that, and you have you have relationships that are close, and you, and you're all working for the same goal, incredible things can happen. But it's about it's about the flexibility that happens when you you know and 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 respect and care for one another which seems really opposite of the sort of cog-in-the-machine scientific management. That's why I bring it well, up. Well,
2: you know, Phil Jackson did not study uh, business administration in college. He, <laughs> he was at the University of North Dakota, and he actually studied religion, philosophy, and psychology. Yeah. So maybe those were actually good subjects he's to manage.
0: He's got a, a real spiritual bent.
2: He
3: yeah. also was, he was, a basketball
0: player. was a professional basketball yeah. player. Yeah. Well. I, but
3: I think his parents were like preachers and stuff, so...
0: Yeah. Um, what you just said, Jason, I think is a key thing to think about in terms of, of doing the opposite and it gets to scale, right? So, right. I mean, a lot of the, these challenges that we're dealing with, we've talked about on so many different levels, you know, and looking at complex systems and and the challenges that we're facing and our inability cognitively to understand the normity of the the like the climate crisis and things that were created. It has just to do with the fact that we're not designed to operate at the scale that we're operating at you know and that's true just in terms of like how we work together as, as human beings there's um another fascinating theory that was developed that came out of you know again studying sort of labor and how people work there's a guy named homer hibarger i think i'm not sure how it's pronounced but you know, he was studying this is like in the 1920s early 20s or something like that he was trying to study how like illumination. I think it was hired by like a light bulb company or something. How that actually makes workers more productive. And so he how light bulbs make
2: workers more productive. If you turn up the The lights, lights. basically. Yeah. This is like early.
0: I was gonna say, yeah, if you're
2: stuck in the dark, it's hard to get your job done. (laughs) Well
0: we talked about Taylor, how his his eyes probably went to shit because (laughs) you know he was studying by candlelight or something like that, right? So he was doing these studies to see if you increase the lights, you know, they would go up and Productivity did go up. And and actually being a true researcher, unlike our buddy Taylor here, he has actually, well, I need to compare this to other things. Right. So he tried a bunch of other stuff. Like he gave, and these were women doing telephone relay stuff. Uh-huh. Yeah, he, like,
2: of, he released several hives of
0: stinging yeah, bees. Yes, so that's what, into what it was. The, uh... No, he, he was trying to do nice things, you know, like... Yeah. Give them breaks, you know, uh, and when he gave them breaks, productivity went up also. And then he gave them more breaks and productivity went up even more. And he eventually let him leave like an hour early every day and productivity (laughs) even went up again. Free lunch, all this stuff. Yeah. And, And he couldn't... He couldn't fucking figure out why this was going on. So they brought in this other guy, this Australian guy named Mayo, to look at this. And basically, his theory was that it doesn't matter what the interventions were. It was the fact that you brought this small team of women together, uh-huh. working together on something. Right. Do you know what I mean, so it was this like cohesion and connection between them that led to that productivity. It didn't matter if it was the lights or the heat or the whatever. Oh, it was, interesting. You know, which is, I think, really fascinating. I mean, there's a dark side to that, which is like, you could, on a managerial level, like try to manipulate – I think they call this sort of, sort of like a humanistic approach to, to management. You could manipulate people too that way if, if, you, if you wanted to. But again, bring it down to the human scale yeah. I think is yeah. really key.
2: Well, that, that's very different, the idea of I'm going to manipulate people by using this information versus I'm going to trust them. To make good decisions as a team. Mm-hmm. And, and that brings up the story of Yosta Bloke. Uh, and I, I read about this in Rutger Bregman's book, Humankind. We talked about Bregman a little bit ago with the the Tucker Carlson interview. Yeah. So Yosta Bloke is like the contrarian CEO who doesn't believe in management, essentially. Huh. Uh, it's it, it's pretty fascinating. So He runs this healthcare organization in the Netherlands. It's kind of about nursing and and giving people care. Uh, It's called uh, Burtzorg. I'm sure I'm butchering that pronunciation, but I I think just in reading some of his quotes, he seems like a contrarian sort of jokester in a way, but his company has won a a shit ton of awards. It was voted employer of the year five times in the Netherlands, Uh, and he gets sought after by professors and, and people all over the world. And, Gives these great interviews. But basically, it's what you guys are talking about. He favors these small teams that are autonomous. They decide who's on their team. They make decisions about how to give care. And what's happened is the people receiving uh, health care are happier and doing better. Obviously, winning these employer of the year, the employees are happy, happier and doing better. And it's like he's basically saying we got to get out of the way. Stop with this middle management. Let's just get rid of it and let people, trust people to make good decisions. And they come up with great ideas.
3: Oh, that's very interesting because it reminds me of a different context. I have a friend, Kennery Webb, and I've been reading her book, Guardians of the the Trees. And she goes to Indonesia after the terrible tsunami. And she watches all these NGOs who are these sort of bloated Bureaucracies where all these people come in from these rich countries, and they think they know what to do, and they 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 separate themselves from the populations trying to help out. She, on the other hand, starts an NGO that goes in to provide healthcare to these rural areas that are the on the edge of these national parks, which is the incredible biodiversity, you know, the cart forests and orangutans, and and they're cutting them down because. People get emergency, they have a medical problem and they, they don't mm. have any cash. Mm-hmm. So they're cutting trees down to go to some hospital. And
2: like they're paying for services and logs, essentially.
3: <laughs> well, they need the cash and, yeah. and uh, otherwise they don't get, there's not many other ways for them to get money. Yeah. yeah. But they don't want to do it. So she talks about how she trusted these poor, uneducated from Western standards mm-hmm. people. And she did this radical listening, like, I'm going to hear for what their li- and understand what their life is about. I'm going to ask them questions. And then she's going to ask them to problem solve collectively. And so it's a, it's a tremendous, like, flip completely. Of, yeah, because
2: Taylor would have asked them questions and then broke out the stopwatch, right? <laughs> right, 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 <laughs>
3: right, right. So, uh, so I, I find all this very interesting, like, trust that most people are going to want to do the right thing. And my friend Kinnery always says, like, they're all actually intelligent. Like, we look down at these people because they they don't they don't have the education we do. But she trusts that they're actually smart. That there's a reasonable amount of average human intelligence out there can actually solve these problems.
0: Yeah, and I, I guess I would say even on a broader level, but but it it really does come down to the to the individual. I think we have to recognize. You talked about this earlier, Rob. I think the the maybe the biographer of of taylor talked about how sort of taylorism has become so seeped into our culture that we we sort of see it as normal and reasonable and rational to be thinking about how productive and efficient we are we do we always do this to ourselves i do this in my life i was actually just talking to my wife about this and she's she's one of the most productive people I know, and she's always kept these like lists, yeah. you know, going yeah. and she's going through this this process right now where she's like, I'm going to cut these lists down. Basically, I'm not going to do these lists anymore and I'm not going to try to create more space. Now, there's a a privilege to being able to do that, that she recognizes. There are a lot of people that are basically... They don't have the freedom or flexibility to do that. But it takes, maybe it takes those of us who are in a position where we do have some of that flexibility to say, we're measuring the wrong things here. Do yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? And you talked, Jason, about like when we talk about efficiency, we're talking about monetary and labor efficiency rather than like energy or resource efficiency. I, I think even efficiency as a whole or productivity, we should be thinking about sustainability mm-hmm. and quality, yeah. you know?
2: Well, let's uh, keep the good stuff from Taylor in the pop culture. So, you know, he's all about cheaper by the dozen, right? But Jost de teams are actually 12 people in in his company. So let's, let's try that. Let's try better by the dozen.
3: That's a good idea.
1: thanks for listening. We just gave you a whole bunch of do the opposite ideas so you can take action in your life and community. If that's too much at this time in your life, do something real simple. Give us a five-star rating on Spotify or any other podcast app and hit the share button to let your friends know about Crazy Town.
3: Really happy to present the sponsor for today's show, Life Quacker. And Life Quacker is about seamless balance and integration. It is the first app to combine the best technology to both squeeze the most out of each moment in your work life while also giving you the self care to keep you from drinking too heavily as a consequence. Wake up hearing from famous motivational deep thought leaders while managing your waking moments with the most complete suite of intuitive calendars, Gantt charts, and delightful reminder tones to provide a consistent pressure to keep you focused on tasks and oh so productive. But wait, it is all worthwhile because in the late evening, you get a few hours to do yoga Tuvan throat singing and many other downshifting techniques to efficiently recuperate. Get up the next morning, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and go at it again like the champ you are. Life quacker! Don't waste your moments. Count them. One,
2: one moment. Ah, uh, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah. Uh. Two, two moments. Ah, uh, ah, uh, ah. Uh, three. Uh.
0: Crazy town. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Crazy town.